0: More people teleworking permanently, more paperwork undergoing automation, and more adoption of the latest cybersecurity strategies. Those are among the top trends for public sector employees for 2022, according to Forrester Research, a leading prognosticator. For more, Forrester Vice President Rick Parrish. Rick, good to have you back. Hey, good to be here. And in this study, you're looking at governments worldwide, correct, and not just the U.S. federal government? That's right. Well, what are some of the other countries? I imagine they're similar, Western, democratic. Sure. We're looking around the world, actually. The scope of
1: our predictions for 2022 is the global public sector at the, the national level, mostly developed or developing countries. So certainly North America, Western Europe of it all, but also the very large, in many cases, very technologically advanced Southeast Asian countries or Eastern European countries as well.
0: And I imagine the pandemic pretty much had similar effects on all of them, regardless of the particulars of their system. Oh, it certainly
1: did. You know, the saying for the past year or so has been that COVID has driven everyone's uh, digital transformations. And that's the same in the public sector as it is in the private.
0: And let's talk about the hybrid worker situation, the place where people do government work. Because that's always been thought of pretty much you gotta be in the office except for maybe a few people are allowed to telework. That seems to have permanently changed according to your prediction. Absolutely. You know, if
1: we think just about the US, at the high point of the lockdown in last year, about two thirds of US federal employees worked remotely, down a bit, you know, since then of course, but again, if we look globally, we're looking at one third of global civil servants becoming hybrid workers permanently from here on out. And that's a huge increase from where it was prior to the pandemic.
0: And as you say, you looked at a lot of different nations, United Arab Emirates, Malta, I see cited here, of course, Mm -hmm. the United Kingdom, New Zealand. And in some ways, the United States might have been a hair behind some of those countries with respect to the availability of broadband and the infrastructure needed to support that number of remote workers, which extended to industry also. That's definitely the case. You know, there are certainly some countries like New
1: Zealand, for instance, the UAE, others in which public sector employees have been working from home at a greater rate for some years. And there's any number of barriers to that in the U.S. broadband, as you say, although our research and others have shown that one of the largest barriers to more public sector employees working from home in the U.S. is actually cultural issues, You know, workplace culture. Managers just wanting their employees in the office where they can keep an eye on them. And that has been one of the biggest hurdles, even more so in many cases than technology in the U.S.
0: And so, therefore, you're predicting that about a third of workers for the public sector in these nations will continue to be hybrid for good. And how does the United States stack up there, do you think?
1: It's going to be one third or even more than one third in the U.S. in particular. One third is really a, a minimum for countries like the US, the UK, other Western European countries, as well as some of the more technologically advanced APAC countries as well. It's really a third when we look at it as a global average.
0: And in your observations, I wonder if you have a sense of what might be the effects of people that always have to be on the job, say they have an outdoor type of work, a forest ranger, or they are a border agent, someone like that, where place of work is inseparable from the work itself. Is there going to be tension there, do you think?
1: There may be some, but in reality, the one-third of global civil servants that work hybrid permanently, these are mostly going to be what we call knowledge workers. Folks who work in offices, they're not doing a great deal. They may be doing some field work, but that's not the main part of their job, or they're not out patrolling as a key part of their job. It's mostly going to affect those sorts of workers where place of work matters very little.
0: All right. We're speaking with Rick Parrish. He is a vice president at Forrester Research. And I wanted to talk about the finding on robotic process automation, RPA. That seems to be creeping up for the amount of work that it does on behalf of people that otherwise push paper. Yes, it is. It's been creeping up for a couple of years now. And countries
1: like the U.S. and and others have consciously been pushing it. In fact, the 2021 U.S. federal budget actually has about 30 initiatives specifically to boost robotic process automation. The goal of this here isn't to eliminate workers. The goal is to eliminate repetitive, low-value tasks so that workers can focus on the things that humans do well rather than filling out rote forms, moving files around, and stuff like that. So sometimes folks hear something like 10% of government administrative workload executed by RPA. And they think, oh, does that mean cutting 10 percent of government employees? No, no, certainly not. What it means is you get to actually focus on the stuff you want to do rather than
0: pushing paper. But 10 percent doesn't seem like all that much, given how long we've had RPA around. What's keeping it from being adopted faster, do you think? The technologies
1: have had to mature? That's certainly been the case. There are cultural <laughs> issues, you know, workplace culture issues. There's issues of contracts, people, employees being worried about the effect on their employment. And then, of course, that brings contract negotiations and the politics in the play of employment numbers and such. Also, you know, there have been a lot of missteps As government organizations have tried to implement RPA over the years, one of the trickiest and most damaging is one out of Australia. It's called the RoboDebt Scandal, where an Australian social services department at the national level basically relied on RPA to figure out which individual people had been overpaid benefits and then to automate the process of trying to claw back those benefits. Oh,
0: What could possibly go wrong?
1: <laughs> exactly. And anything that could possibly go wrong did. And so it's been a years long, massive scandal caused any amount of problem for individual people for the government department, for the Australian government in general. And, you know, that's just one high-profile scandal. There have been lots of flubs. And so it's been a process of not just maturing the technology, but maturing the best practices, the change management of it all. And we know a lot more about that now than we did just a few years ago. So it's time for things to start maturing.
0: And yet, somewhat ironically, you note here that the anemic government IT itself will account for failure to spend 20% of stimulus funds globally. So in other words, the systems that are in place to disperse these funds, according to whatever new policy is passed Mm -hmm. for stimulus, is sitting in treasuries. That's exactly it. Over the past couple
1: of years, a lot of governments have done a really good job in trying to get their own IT houses in order, largely in response to the pandemic, of course. And one of the intentions behind getting their IT houses in order is it takes a lot of government IT to push through on the spending of stimulus programs there's a lot of money that has to be sent in different places there's a lot of tech stuff that has to happen to make these stimulus programs go and unfortunately that doesn't go perfectly and so that's why we landed on the term anemic it's weak government it still better than it was but not as good as it needs to be and
0: that means just a lot of sand in the gears And it means also not merely a failure to disperse all the funds as required by statute, but also an inability to have a really good view of oversight, that it's all being spent correctly.
1: That is definitely the case. Waste, fraud, and
0: abuse is always a major concern in
1: government. And it's always very high profile when it happens. And of course, it's always happening. There's no way to stop all of it, but a better government IT can stop a lot of it while still getting the right programs implemented a lot faster.
0: And of course, the big issue facing so many governments and larger organizations is the rise in ransomware. And so what does Forrester see? What did your research show that governments will be doing with respect to cybersecurity in the coming year?
1: Sure. What we see is that at least five more national governments will adopt what's called a zero trust technology architecture. The U.S. was the first national government to officially adopt this zero-trust architecture last year. And we see at least five more national governments following it, officially adopting zero-trust. Now, that's a total of six. That doesn't sound like a lot. But zero-trust is a major innovation in cybersecurity. And six is a lot more than zero. So that's actually a big innovation. And this is a sort of thing that not just changes government cybersecurity posture, but can change the cybersecurity posture of an entire economy. Because when a national government requires a zero-trust architecture, that means that businesses that want to do business with government have to adopt a zero-trust architecture. And so that cascades throughout the economy. It's one of the, the major ways in which governments affect societies is by embracing a certain standard that then cascades throughout
0: and who are the other five governments?
1: Well, that's trickier to determine, but chances are these will be close U.S. partners, like Five Eyes countries, for instance, the U.K., Canada, et cetera. Although I certainly wouldn't rule out uh, some of the other very large, technologically advanced APAC countries, you know, a Malaysia or an in Indonesia. You know, we, we don't often think about these countries when we think about high-tech countries, but these governments
0: are uh, digitally very advanced. And let me just ask you one final question. Did you look at Mexico? That's a government that doesn't often come up as much in these discussions. And Mm -hmm. Mexico is a big country. It's 100 million people. And what is the status of their technological advancement and their general ability to oversee their programs in Mexico? Do we have a sense of that? Sure, we do have a sense of that. And the short answer
1: is better than we usually think. (laughs) The Mexican government is better than we usually think it is at things like uh, digital transformation, cybersecurity, et cetera. However, it is not among the leaders. It's mired in a lot of the same problems that every other country is mired in. Everything from acquisitions, regulations, problems, to overblown implementation, to a lack of understanding of best practices. So the Mexican government... Not on the leading edge of any of this, but certainly not the outright laggard that we might expect, middle of the pack, let's say.
0: All right. And I guess let me ask you this about one more nation then, while I've got you India, a billion Mm -hmm. and some people. Yes. And pushing hard for digital transformation in its government.
1: And that's been controversial, of course, right? There was the digital currency issue from a few years ago that's still reverberating throughout India. They are closer to the leading edge than a government like Mexico. However, they are mired in a lot of implementation problems because it's, it's a much more federated, let's call it, technology environment in the Indian government than, say, in the Mexican government. Many more centers of decision-making, many more centers of implementation, which makes the coordination that much more difficult because there's so many different competing interests. And I'm not talking about the political level. I'm talking about the, you know the working public sector level.
0: Yeah, interesting, because they have a really big workforce in the public sector. I mean, they have that kind of colonial legacy of Great Britain of Mm -hmm. a very large standing civil workforce.
1: And they certainly have the technologies to implement this stuff. And they are the permanent hybrid work, the RPA, working toward better cybersecurity standards. They're on their way. They're just they're not on the leading edge of it.
0: All right. Well, lots to think about. Rick Parrish is vice president and a principal analyst at Forrester Research. Thanks so much. Good to talk to you. We'll post this interview together with a link to more on that report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows.
2: Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral.
3: and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea.
2: Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WAPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is, is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants